Welcome to the 421st episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. And I'm all healed up, so it is coming on two weeks since my 50-mile race, the Hoka 50, uh, Hoka Rocky 50 um, in Texas, and I uh, feel pretty much back to normal. Legs are good, running about five miles a day. I have to say that of all uh, the sore parts, my ribs were the last part to actually heal, so I think I bruised them pretty good, but they're uh, about back to normal. Um, started some strength training workouts. Um, not quite back to my pull-up routine. Uh, still a little bit uh, tender when I hang from the pull-up bar, but other than that, uh, feel feel pretty good. So ready for the Treasure Coast Marathon next weekend. Looking forward to seeing everybody there. Uh, we'll be heading over to Stewart, Florida to join the plant-based runners and striders and everybody else to, to um, enjoy a warm weather marathon. So that'll be pretty cool. I did do a little bit more research on my monovision and depth perception, and uh, it's true. Um, according to my ophthalmologist and some other physicians that I uh, encountered, that uh, depth percep- perception is not that great with monovision. So I'm working on getting a set of contexts that I can see distance and depth well and close vision okay enough to see my Garmin. Luckily, the font on the Garmin's are big enough that um, don't have to see really good up up close. I've looked on some of the different ultra running groups and some people carry cheaters in their vests. I hope I don't have to uh, succumb to that, but eh, someday maybe, who knows, wouldn't be the worst thing. Last week I did an interview with the group, the YouTube group Chat and Chew, talking about uh, diabetes and heart disease. So if you want to hear a little recap of that, you can head on over to YouTube and search Chat and Chew. Maybe I'll leave a link in the show notes. I'm headed to the Port Charlotte or Punta Gorda Veg Fest this weekend uh, to give a talk. It's their annual Veg Fest, so I'm hoping that that'll be um, nice weather and they'll have a, have a good turnout. I have mixed the feelings uh, about the Veg Fest. I've spoken at a lot of Veg Fest, and um, what I find is there are a lot more people interested in saving animals than saving their own lives, which is good, but I think that you can have both. Um, I also don't like it when people um, turn other people away because they feel a little superior because they have more compassion as far as saving the animals. So um, I hope it's not like that this year. Um, I know Dr. Tuttle's going to be there. He always gives a very good talk. I hope they have some good vendors. Uh, again, I hope they have not vegan junk food. The, the uh, hosts for the VegFest try to get people to do more. Um, plant-based healthy uh, alternatives uh, rather than uh, just vegan junk food but you know a lot of times when people are going to a festival or a um, you know outdoor activity they're looking for junk food Um, and so you try to attract a little bit of everybody um, but uh, I'd like people to eat more healthy when they uh, or to know that you can eat healthy and and stay plant-based I think that's the biggest challenge for most people I want to share a success story with you today. Um, I uh, have a member that um, had a aneurysm in the lower leg um, behind the knee and uh, probably a blood clot in that artery that goes down uh, into the shin, and it was hampering his ability to walk uh, without having severe cramps. And he had been, um, actually had done a marathon before, 
and this was slowing him down. Most likely, the clot came from an abdominal aortic aneurysm that had been stented. And again, when we get a stent or a procedure done, it doesn't always mean there's not going to be another procedure. Um, fixing an abdominal aorta is a life-saving procedure uh, when the abdominal aorta gets greater than five and a half centimeters. So it's a procedure that needs to be done. Um, if you find an aneurysm early, you might be able to stabilize it uh, with a plant-based diet, but most of the time, once it gets fairly large, um, it's just like any weak tire. If you think about an outpouching on a tire, it can be, um, it, it, the wall just kind of gives away. And there's a bit of a genetic component to um, having a little bit abnormal muscle in the wall of an artery, but um, you know that together with vascular disease, um, again, leads to progression of the aneurysm. And if it ruptures, there's a uh, over 50% chance of death so it's good to get it taken care of beforehand. But um, when there's vascular disease and when there's an intervention, there's always a risk of, of clotting within uh, the stent and, or little pieces of plaque breaking off, and that's what happened this time. So the question is what to do about it. And traditional therapy would be, you know, let's fix this quickly. To give you a little bit of a background on peripheral vascular disease, it's not too much different than coronary artery disease that involves, but peripheral vascular disease involves the legs or the arteries of the um, lower extremities for the most part. You can have vascular disease of the arteries underneath the collarbone. Uh, you can have peripheral vascular disease going to the kidneys or to the gut, but most commonly when we talk about peripheral vascular disease, we're talking about the blood vessels that go to the legs, and there's a big blood vessel that divides in the top of the leg and then it divides again uh, at the knee. And as you would expect, the vessels get smaller as they go towards the feet. And then there's a bit of a circle of artery uh, around the foot to supply the toes and the feet and um, then meets with capillaries and the veins return the blood, blood to the heart. The symptoms of claudication, you've probably seen on TV, um, are pain in the legs. So when somebody walks and they get a cramping of the leg and they stop and the cramp goes away, that's a sign that the lower leg is not getting enough blood flow to it. Um, sometimes with diabetics, it can be hard to sort out because their legs hurt from neuropathy, but typically that's the way it goes, that it's a progressive type thing that eventually their legs hurt at rest or even at night. And so by even just laying, dropping your leg over the side of the bed so it can be gravity fed, so to speak, with blood, it can make the pain better. The other thing you often see is um, people can get wounds uh, in their toes, so uh, ulcers that don't heal, uh, involving the toe, black toes, even loose toes, because again, as you go further, the arteries to the toes and the feet get smaller. Um, and early on, you see loss of hair in the lower legs, especially in men. So if you see a man um, that used to have hairy legs and doesn't have hairy legs anymore, that's a sign that uh, there's not as much blood flow to the skin and the actual hair follicles uh, start to decrease and, and uh, people lose the hair on their legs. So that is an, also a sign of vascular disease. And of course, if you touch someone's legs and you bring your hand down from their knee, down their leg to their foot and their foot, uh, their ankle and their foot, your legs should be the same temperature on both sides, you know, unless you had one under the blanket or, you know, but... For the most part, your, your legs should be at the same temperature. If you have one leg that's cooler than the other, that also implies that there's not as much blood flow. 
Sometimes people get worried that when they hang their, their foot over, uh, it's, it's down and they're sitting and their toes turn blue, that that's a um, sign of decreased blood flow. That can also be a sign of, of some venous um, return issues. So when the blood goes, the, the oxygenated blood goes into the tissue and the oxygen is extracted and the um, blood comes back through the, cap the little capillaries and venules, um, that's deoxygenated blood and it's darker. So sometimes people can have um, venous disease when the blood can't get back up. So the blood kind of pulls in their legs a little bit when they're down and they, they turn a little bit purple. So that's not always a sign of arterial problems. Um, so those are, of course, being, you know, having cold feet all the time is a sign of uh, potential decrease in blood flow. But that needs to be correlated with taking somebody's pulse. So you have a pulse on top of your foot, carotid dorsalis pedis pulse, and a pulse behind your ankle bone, the posterior tibial pulse, and you should be able to feel those. And if they're bounding, no worries. Um, if you can't feel them, um, the question is if it's because you can't feel them or is it they're not there. So that's where a doctor will feel them or use a Doppler to, like you listen to a baby's heart, uh, to, to hear the, the, the artery pounding. So sometimes people get sent for vascular ultrasounds um, just because they have high blood pressure or high cholesterol. And typically the ultrasounds um, look at flow because it's very difficult to really measure the arteries, especially when they get smaller and they're deeper. Uh, so it's hard to get a real good look at them. So you look at flows and velocities, and when the flows decrease, that's a sign that the velocities are also decreasing. The blood pressure in the leg should be higher than the blood pressure in your arm. And we also look at an ankle brachial index, so an ankle blood pressure versus the arm blood pressure. Uh, and when that becomes less than one, then that's a sign of significant vascular disease. But most of the time, people have symptoms, and they're the symptoms just like I described. And so the question is, what do you do about those symptoms? The problem is, um, well, it's, it's good to find out where the pulse, where the actual obstruction is, for starters. So is it up high in the leg, or is it towards the knee, or, or, or down lower? Um, the success rate of the further you get down and the smaller blood vessels are as far as doing a stent or some sort of a bypass to restore blood flow becomes less and less because we just don't have isolated blockages one place. There's blockages all through the vascular system. So if there's a blockage, you know, halfway down, chances are there's going to be even more blockages as things get smaller. So when you try to fix one area, it doesn't always result in improved circulation the other way. The best thing to do uh, is exercise. Uh, just like when you exercise or you eat right, you can increase collateral blood flow to the heart. You can do that to your legs as well. So if you walk until you get discomfort in your legs, you wait a little bit, then you walk some more, um, then you can actually improve collateral blood flows around the blockages and open up blood flows so that um, it can be like limb saving. And there's actually never been a study showing that doing uh, peripheral um, work for claudication uh, really makes a difference as far as the ultimate outcome. Now, if somebody's about to lose a foot or lose a toe, then, you know, now the risks are increased. So sometimes intervention is taken on as a last ditch effort, so to speak. 
But when somebody has claudication, it becomes, you know, it's it's problem because then they walk less, and the more they or the the less they walk, um, the more deterioration that they get, the less blood flow that they get, and you know, if there's no flow, then the obstruction gets worse quicker and bad things happen. Uh, so you can get ulcers, uh, the claudication can get worse, people become sedentary, and everything that goes along with being sedentary. Well, in this person's case, he's training for a marathon, so um, it wasn't about stopping, but it's about how do you get distance. And of course, it, how do you make sure it's safe? So if there's a clot sitting somewhere, uh, how, do we, how are we sure that the clot's not gonna go further the wrong direction? And that really can't ever be determined. There's no test that can determine that. Um, potential therapies are um, trying to surgically go in and bypass the problem, um, but that involves opening up the leg, hoping, again, that a wound is going to heal in a place where there might not be great blood flow. Um, there's a chance of damaging the blood vessel further and causing worsening uh, injury. Um, there's some clot buster medications that are given intravenously, but those also can cause systemic bleeding, bleeding any place that you might have an issue and uh, cause a lot of problems. So once again, we're left with um, having a, minor, uh, a, a, a significant problem, but it could be a lot worse if with the treatment. So for the general population, you know, it might be, oh, well, um, do what you can, walk as much as you can, um, and we'll see how it goes. Or you take the risk of the surgery or the blood thinner. But in his case, he's training for a marathon. And so what do, what do we do? So um, we sodded up his greens. So we did give him uh, a bit of a blood thinner, uh, Plavix, which is an oral medication uh, that we often give to people that have stents. Um, but we also bumped up his greens a lot before he went for a walk. And lo and behold, um, the discomfort uh, eased up. And so he was able to walk further and further and further. And uh, now he's able to um, train for the marathon. And he's done a 20 mile or so. We're planning on getting the start line. So again, it wasn't without great effort. So it's walking until you get discomfort and then starting again and radically changing your diet or improving a diet that you thought was okay. The thing that people don't often think about is what happens with surgery of any kind. Um, you get surgery, you have a recovery time. And in the case of older people, um, that recovery time, not walking, can lead to significant bone loss and muscle loss and fitness loss. So, again, it's one thing in a very young person that's really, really fit, but the older people get and the less fit they are to start with, surgery can really be a setback that they never really recover from. And then the rehab. Um, and often we treat rehab in people to just get them to not have discomfort and to get back up on their feet. And we don't put the bar very high, like training for a marathon or training for a trip or walking or becoming very active, playing pickleball, tennis, whatever you want to do. So our rehab efforts are not very good uh, and the bar is very low. So people never get back to their baseline functional abilities. And one thing leads to another. 
Anytime we give people anesthesia, we have a risk of anesthesia from, uh, you know, mentation aspects, again, complications of surgery, infection, um, and even loss of limbs. So the quick fix that let's just go ahead and bypass the artery or let's go ahead and just try to open it up with uh, medication by you know, by any stretch, that, that would be a quicker fix than changing the way you eat and going through a rehab process of walking longer and longer. But there's no improved outcome, and it may be significant worse, significantly worse. But we don't often think about that. We just want things fixed quickly so we can go on, and then we deal with those complications later or chronically. The same thing happens with testing people that don't have any symptoms. So a routine stress test on someone just because they may be of certain age and have risk factors can lead to a bunch more procedures that often have side effects and people get into trouble. But somehow we've been made to believe that as long as a doctor's doing tests on us and we're going to the doctor, that everything's going to be all right. But sometimes Turning over those rocks without what we're going to do with the result uh, can, can cause harm that would never have happened. So finding an abnormal stress, finding a stress test that's abnormal in someone, even if they have vascular disease, for real, doesn't necessarily, they're going to be, live longer or better. We know that people don't have symptoms, they're not going to live longer or better from any vascular procedure uh, involving the heart. And then that takes us to the newest tests and calcium scores. And the latest and greatest, you know, should there are um, physicians out there that say everybody should know their calcium score, like you know your cholesterol, like you know your blood pressure. You know, my first response to that would be how many people really have done anything about having their blood pressure be high other than perhaps taking a medication uh, or even the cholesterol. Have you done anything about it other than just take a medication? and hope that that is going to be what saves you. And again, there's little data and little benefit, some, but, but not a tremendous amount. It's certainly not a cure-all for every person. So when you look at the calcium score, we typically do it in a population that has coronary artery disease already. So once people are over the age of 50, the risk uh, in the general population of vascular disease is there. The higher the calcium score has been correlated with the worse prognosis from not only a cardiovascular standpoint, but from all-cause mortality and a cancer mortality. Well, it makes sense, right? Because if you have an, a tremendously elevated calcium score greater than 1,000, then you probably also have a lot of other risk factors for lifestyle diseases. Because if we back all the way up, the risk factors for lifestyle diseases are all the same for the most part. We have metabolic dysfunction, um, increased metabolic waste, increased inflammation, overweight, sedentary, high blood pressure, smoking, that all increase our risk for other, other lifestyle diseases. So a, a positive calcium score is really rarely noted in or a terribly one, in somebody that doesn't have some of those other risk factors. So what do you do with it? Um, so there's a zero calcium score. That's great. You don't have any calcium in your arteries, but it doesn't mean you don't have soft plaques that couldn't rupture tonight and cause a heart attack. So it doesn't mean you're bulletproof. 
but it's a good prognostic indicator. Um, I would probably say uh, if somebody was going out and, you know, doing a marathon without any symptoms, it's probably as good as a calcium score of zero um, in a person that didn't have any risk factors. But we don't know what to make of the positive calcium score in intervention because those studies haven't been done. So we don't know if we take all comers with a positive calcium score and do a stress test or heart catheterization and intervention, do we actually ultimately make them live longer or live better, especially in the absence of symptoms? Because every one of those procedures that follow the calcium score can make someone, can have, can have side effects, such as stroke, heart attack, or death. So... We don't know how many people, and the more procedures you have done, the more you have, the more risk. So the more procedures you do, the more chances are you're gonna, there's gonna be an abnormal um, or adverse outcome with, with a procedure. It's just the risk of doing the procedure. Some people say, well, if they knew, then they would be more likely to change. Again, I have not seen that come true in my uh, 30 years of medical practice. Even when people have a bypass, they might be a little bit more concerned about their diet and walking for a little bit, but when the scar heals, so do they go back to their old ways. So there are very few people that have um, a benign test. They have no symptoms whatsoever, so they feel perfectly fine, and they have a test that says they're not perfectly fine. Are they going to change uh, to prevent an adverse outcome. If anything, they might you know, be willing to have more procedures to change that. So the reality of it is a calcium, calcium score can generate a lot of money for a hospital, uh, perhaps for an interventional cardiologist, but I'm not sure what to do with it other than to change what you're doing with respect to risk factor modification. So obviously, uh, if somebody smokes, they shouldn't smoke. Um, if they... Um, are eating a poor diet, uh, then obviously we'd like them to not only eat a plant-based diet, but to eat a healthy plant-based diet without added oil and very low in saturated fat, 10-15%. Um, you know, avoid seed oils as a source of inflammation and clotting. Eat, a, eat six cups of greens a day or nitric oxide producing greens a day uh, to help uh, open up the arteries and open up the collaterals. And not only will that result in increased blood flow, but it'll probably result in decreased weight, um, increased blood flow to the extremities, uh, better glucose metabolism, elimination of metabolic waste, decreased inflammation, less joint pain, decreased risk of cancer. So it's um, changing your risk factors typically result in a great reduction in overall risk for vascular events, but overall risk in general. But it takes longer and it takes effort. A positive calcium score is never going to go the other direction. And even in athletes, as I've said on the podcast before, there's an increased risk of calcium score. Uh, the more people do as far as endurance athletes tend to have a higher calcium score than non-endurance athletes, even though they have less cardiac events. So it doesn't even seem to mean uh, anything horribly horrible for an endurance athlete. It, and calcification is stabilization of plaque. So it may be that with running and increased heart rate and decreased inflammation that those 20 percenters are becoming stable and becoming more calcified and less likely to rupture. 
Because as long as you have blood flow to the heart, the only thing that's going to cause a massive heart attack is rupture of a plaque. And if it's calcified, the risk of rupturing the plaque is very, very low. None of us like to look at a bad image. Nobody likes to look at a stress test that's abnormal. Nobody likes to look at an angiogram or an ultrasound that's abnormal. And in the United States, to look at something and turn the other way is considered malpractice. Um, so intervention, even though it carries risk of stroke, heart attack, or death, um, implies that the doctor gave it, its, gave it uh, their all. Uh, and was doing something as opposed to sitting idly watching somebody become worse. Nobody appreciates the fact that nutrition uh, modification uh, is actually going to make somebody better from a baseline without significant risk up front. In fact, there's never been a study looking at a positive calcium score and saying, hey, your calcium score is elevated. Let's put you on a whole food plant-based diet and compare your outcome to people that uh, continue on statins and maybe control their blood pressure and go on about their business. Never been done. In fact, nobody's even looked with regard to outcome whether or not you have a positive calcium score and you have all these risk factors and what's actually going contribute, to contribute to the problem in the end anyway. So if you have a positive calcium score, um, you need to do something about it. If you haven't had a calcium score, then you need to think about what you would do with the outcome. Different people do different things, um, and you have that choice, but you need to be presented the options of what you might do with the results. I have a strong family history for cardiovascular disease. It doesn't matter what my calcium score is. What matters if I have symptoms and what I do to try to prevent cardiovascular disease from occurring. And the best thing that I know is a whole food plant-based diet uh, with no added oil and exercise. I know that exercise has no upper limits to the benefit of it. So that's the lifestyle that I choose. I'm never tempted by going off of this diet because I know, given my family history, that I would probably have vascular disease pretty quick and diabetes. In some respect, a calcium score is not that much different than a mammogram. Um, if you have no symptoms and you have a mammogram and there's calcifications, there may be um, the beginning of a malignancy. You can go and do something about that and have it resected and radiation and all those other things, but the overall life expectancy is really not changed because of the morbidity and mortality associated with the interventions to get rid of the microcalcifications. So you may know you have cancer longer than if you had a mass and you had that resected and then treated, but the overall duration uh, is longer, but not necessarily the life expectancy. Same way with the calcium score, I think, is that um, you may be a patient longer, but it's not necessarily going to be, uh, not going to change your overall outcome, especially if you don't change. And there, and there is the, the bottom line. If you change, then that makes all the difference in the world. I listened to a podcast um, that interviewed um, some very well-respected uh, Harvard and uh, Mass General um, physicians involved with treating obesity. And there was a debate among uh, various people in, on the podcast, was obesity a disease and how it should be treated? And it was funny because it had the same 
discussion as coronary artery disease. Um, the question was, is there a genetic link? Maybe, probably, and certainly in some people. Do you have to have those genes turn on? Absolutely not. There's always lifestyle modification to avoid turning on those potential bad genes. But everybody jumped to um, this medication of Zempic or bariatric surgery because it was a quick fix to the problem of obesity. It didn't change the genes. It didn't uh, result in complete cure. Uh, average weight loss, I think, was like 12 pounds. So just like blood pressure, um, it was a modest control of the blood pressure. And lifestyle changes were quickly dismissed, and people and their argument was that a lot of people can't do lifestyle medic, medic, lifestyle changes. And so they jump into, even as young as 13 years old, into treating people with gastric bypass or young people with Ozempic, which is a lifelong injection, labeling them with a disease from an early age and everything that goes with it, with no long-term studies looking at the side effects of that treatment. The earliest side effect known almost in the majority of people were nausea and vomiting and, and, and uh, decreased appetite because it delays gastric emptying. Well, I mean, it's easy to lose weight if you're sick and you can't eat. Um, but you go off of the medication and then there's a rebound of the weight gain. We know that the gut microbiome has a lot to do with inflammation and it has a lot to do with feedback loops as far as driving hunger and the gut-brain axis is a real thing. And everybody agreed on the podcast that it was. Yet nobody brought up the idea of should we make sure these people eat foods that actually change their gut microbiome that might ultimately help them. So how is it different from me who has a strong family history of heart disease if I choose to eat a standard American diet then I will be choosing an intervention and probably a shortened lifespan versus again choosing a lifestyle modification with obesity versus procedures and becoming a chronic patient. Because just changing that one is not going to change all the other lifestyle diseases that go along with overeating and eating poorly. Even if you give them um, the medication that controls their weight, if they're still eating a poor diet, they're still going to have increased cardiovascular disease and other lifestyle diseases. So wouldn't it be better to really give nutritional change a try. The problem is, and it was brought up in the podcast, that those large, famous institutions get a majority of their money from the pharmaceutical industry. And the reality is that they also make money from doing procedures. So ties with pharmaceutical industries and procedure companies uh, and device companies is never going to go out of the system. It's a lot easier to do something, send somebody on their way and said, we did our best, than to actually chronic work with, well, chronically work with them to change their nutrition. It's actually kind of funny because one of the biggest reasons people stop taking medications for things like cholesterol or antibiotics or blood pressure medicine is because they make them feel nauseated. But people are wanting this injectable drug for $8,000 a month that makes them lose weight by making them nauseated. Um, 
so it just, I, I guess it goes to show the frustration that people have with the inability to control um, their food intake, mainly because of the way food has been, uh, especially uh, processed food, food that you get at a restaurant has been changed so much that it addicts people um, and people are felt to be inferior if they can't have all the junk food that they want. Uh, and it's on every ad that you see that's not a car ad, it's typically something, some fast food ad. Um, it's in celebrations. Uh, it's, it's everywhere. Um, my recommendation is to take it back and take it simple. Um, I think planning meals is very, very important. Uh, menu planning so that you don't overbuy. Eating things in their whole, uh, in their whole form as, as opposed to ultra processed. So the same thing would be, you know, um, one day this week we had, we, we call it Irish stew, um, cabbage, potatoes, carrots, had celery out of the garden, had some onion, and had white beans with that. That was our dinner. Um, so we got the nitric oxide producing cabbage. Um, we had a protein source in the beans, fiber source in all of that, carrots, beta carotene. Celery has a lot of uh, you know, minerals and, and nutrients. Um, it was a great dinner. Tonight, I had a uh, burrito bowl of sorts. Uh, I made a uh, homemade um, um, corn masa base. Uh, so I took corn masa and water and uh, made it into a pancake batter and dry fried that as our, as our taco shell base, so to speak. And then um, in water, I uh, did mushrooms, um, bell peppers, poblano peppers, a hot pepper, and um, pinto beans and red beans. We had cilantro, we had fresh salsa. Uh, it was a delicious meal. Um, and I did kale with that too, so that was our source of greens. My lunch was a kale salad uh, with cucumber and tomato, and I had tempeh on, uh, as a, a bean source on my uh, kale salad today. I typically eat fruit for breakfast. I have some fruit after uh, each of my meals. Uh, and it's simple. Uh, I don't juice it. I don't smoothie it. I think smoothies are great if you need to get more calories in, uh, if you're nutrient deficient. If you're a child and you're trying to introduce children to more fruits, that's, that's a way. But otherwise, I think that you should chew your food um, and eat it that way. It leads to not overeating. You can drink a blender full of things a lot easier. You can get a lot more calories. That's the way we put calories on sick people. So it's going to put more calories on people that don't need to um, gain weight. So keeping it simple um, is the easiest way to health. And again, if you're focused on vascular disease, you want to get those six cups of greens in a day. So, you know, I uh, basically ate a head of kale at lunch and I, we had a head of kale between two people at dinner time. Um, we, we had a head of cabbage uh, in that setting. And, and we may have some leftovers, but, you know, I'll typically cook enough that, that we have um, leftovers for an, another meal. Uh, we had a pho soup that I had Napa cabbage in, um, as well as tofu and mushrooms. I had mushrooms. I had mushrooms tonight too, if I don't know if I left that out, but I like to eat mushrooms for the anti-cancer benefit. I, I get my greens in every day. That's my focus. Um, I typically get in soy milk, uh, as an anti-cancer property for myself. Um, I get my fruit in, 
uh, make sure I'm getting all the fiber source that, you know, as fiber source. I do eat a tablespoon of chia seeds in the morning uh, with my fruit. So it's simple. Um, there's not a lot. Of, I don't do refried beans or smash beans. I rarely do hummus. Um, can't tell you when I had it the last time uh, because it becomes more calorie dense and you can't really measure the portion. So I'd rather have straight beans. And so I, I can get an idea of how much I'm getting and that I'm getting enough and not too much. I do eat bread, but I eat bread that I make. I eat sourdough bread that's, you know, so I have a fermented uh, extra source of good, of good uh, gut microbes. I don't eat the whole loaf. I have a piece of toast for breakfast. So I rarely eat, uh, if we, occasionally we would have a uh, tofu egg sandwich as a dinner, um, kind of a dinner, our breakfast for dinner would be a tofu egg sandwich and a bowl of soup. Uh, that would be when I would eat bread for dinner for the most part. But, um, you know, trying to keep it simple is the easiest way to know exactly what you're eating. Uh, and not fool yourself into uh, making something that you don't like or overly restricting your calories and then snacking uh, and grazing on the backside. It does take a village to change because there are more people and more deterrence to change uh, than there are people that are doing things this way or the old-fashioned way or the hard way. Um, so you have to look for your people. I hope that this podcast uh, provides you with some sort of support for your plant-based lifestyle. Um, if you have friends, share it with them. Maybe it'll ring a bell. Who knows? Uh, I believe that a community is beneficial. That's why in our practice we have a plant-based community. We do balance class. We do yoga. Uh, we do nutrition class. They're put on uh, their Zoom so people that are out of state can watch them as well uh, and have access to them. Um, I have a full-time registered dietitian, Addie Delaney Minerich, who was on the, has been on the podcast before. So we work with people very closely to support them and point them in directions, not only in our practice, but outside of our practice so they can get some support because you have to look for your people. So if you'd like to be one of our people, go, over, go on over to drdelaney.com. If you want to be one of those people that puts your health first and you want to be in control of your health, we'd like to help you. Uh, you can email me at jamie, J-A-M-I, at drdelaney.com uh, if you have any questions about the practice If after you've looked at the website. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks always for listening, and uh, can't wait to tell you about the marathon next week. So have a good weekend.